James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil or who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So we're going to focus on those two verses, 11 and 12, this morning as we continue walking through James. But I I don't want us to lose sight of the bigger picture. It's easy to zoom in too far and and lose sight of what's going on around it. So I I don't want us to do that. So I want to go back up to verse 1 and read through verse 12 so that we we get the larger train of thought. And I believe that's where the larger train of thought is logically divided, and I'll try to give you some explanation of that in a minute. So so back in verse 1, now we're going to read, read it for context. James says, What quarrel or what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire to do... You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see a theme here. Draw near to God and He will... No, submit yourselves therefore to God. Verse 7, resist the devil, He will flee from you. Draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Up to this point, James has been rather affectionate with his audience, even if he's had to be stern at times. He has consistently called them brothers. That's an affectionate term. It means we're family. I love you. You're my brother. We're together in this. So he's it's consistently called them brothers, even as, as he rebuked them as adulterous people back in, in verse 4. He still comes back to that affectionate term, brothers, in verse 11. So don't speak evil against one another, brothers. There's an affection there. That's an important thing to be aware of because it tells us that all the problems and sins that James has addressed so far are problems that are affecting redeemed people. Brothers. At the very least, 
These are people that, that James, the Apostle James, is comfortable saying, this is my brother in Christ. These are not people who he have said, put them away from you. Don't let them be named among you. Paul said that, remember? Paul said that a, a, about a, a few situations. Put them away from you. Don't let it be named among you. James says, brother, you're my brother. And so there are parts of the New Testament that are distinctly written to unbelievers. Take the Gospels, for example. That is written to an audience of unbelievers. There are large portions, however, of the New Testament that are written to people of faith that are telling us that if you're an unbeliever, you're not going to really get what this letter is saying. You're not going to really get what, what Paul is saying in much of his writings. You're not going to really get it because the language doesn't make sense to you. You don't understand this grace thing. You don't know who is Jesus. We find that out in the Gospels. So there are large portions of the New Testament that are written specifically to believers to tell us how to live out and walk out this new life in Christ. Once we've come to know Christ and the grace and, and the forgiveness that we have in Him, that He is our Savior and our Lord, and that's important, Lord with a capital L, that we've come to know Him that way, then there's, there's, there's stuff for us in the New Testament to tell us you, have, you need further instruction. You need to know how to walk this out. I'm bringing this up for two reasons. And they're really two different sides of the same coin, okay? The, the first reason is that I want you to see how prideful it would be for us to assume that because we profess Christ and we go to church and we know all the lingo and all the trappings that go along with it, that we are somehow immune to the besetting sins that the apostles warn us about. James is writing to brothers. Amen. Amen. And on the flip side of that coin, I want you to see how prideful it would be to look at your own life and say, there is no help for me in Christ. I'm the biggest sinner of them all, and so I've got to fix myself before he will accept me. As if to say God's grace through Jesus Christ isn't enough to cover my sin. That's prideful. Believe it or not, there, there's no humility in that. It may feel like humility, but it's false humility. Because pride always rejects grace. Every single time. Pride is an enemy of grace. Every single time. You find yourself in a situation where you genuinely need help and someone offers help and so you turn them down, either because you don't want to go through the embarrassment of having to admit that you need help or because you are determined to go at it alone without help. Either way, we're looking at pride. Either way, it's destructive. Pride cannot say... Save me. I need a Savior. Amen. Pride always says, I can handle this myself. So as we work through these warnings and instructions that James gives us, I don't want you to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, that's not for me. I've got that under control. Don't you think he was writing to brothers who thought, I've got this under control? There's a reason he had to address these things with them. 
on the flip side of the coin, don't, don't fall into the equally prideful trap of thinking that you must solve your sin problem before you can be counted among the brethren. Christ has solved your sin problem. Amen. One of them says, I have no sin. The other says, you can't help me with my sin. And they're both equally damnable in their pride. So, there is a theme that seems to be running through James's letter, the subject of human pride, and how it completely is contrary to the, the Christian way. Those who profess Christ cannot be prideful. You are humble people. That's what it means to be a Christian and a follower is to be humble. The people of God are to be humble people. And this message occurs all over the Bible. It's all over James's letter. From way back in the beginning, in chapter 1, James said, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And he was giving us a dichotomy of humility and pride. In chapter 2, he warns us against the sin of partiality. Isn't that rooted in pride? Thinking that your dead faith that has no works is alive and will save you. Prideful. Can that faith save you? Refusing to tame the tongue in chapter 3. You know, I'm going to say what I have to say, and I don't care who gets mad about it. Pride. And James says, how great a forest is set ablaze by that pride from hell. If you follow the wisdom of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, it's pride. What, What causes quarrels and fights among you, brothers? Isn't it that your passions are at war within you? And what happens when our passions win out? Well, that's pride. I want what I want, so I'm going to get it. Then we come to the middle of chapter 4. It seems to me very telling that the place where we, we find the greatest concentration of commands. We've talked about that before. There are numerous commands in, in the letter all over the New Testament. I mean, we, we traded the Ten Commandments for literally hundreds of commandments in the New Covenant. Hundreds. They're all over the New Testament. So we have, we, we've got numerous commands in the letter of James. There's about 60 of them, imperatives. These are words where the, the requirement to answer these words is, is some kind of, of action. We must do something or be something. That's what, that's what an imperative is. It's calling us to do something or to be something. There are 60 places in, in these five chapters where James issues an imperative. We get to the middle of chapter 4, all of chapter 4, in fact, they're all scrunched. All the imperatives in chapter 4 are scrunched into about four verses, and there's 11 of them. So a fifth of all, of every, of all the imperatives, a little, over, a little over a fifth of all the imperatives is scrunched into about four verses in, in, in chapter 4. You don't see this anywhere else in the letter. Everywhere else, the commands are, you know, they're spread out across the page. You've got a, an imperative, and you have some explanation and argumentation. Then you have an imperative, you have some explanation and argumentation. Right here, in the middle of chapter 4, it's boom, 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 boom. I mean, just one after the other. Look at verse 7. 
Remember, when you get to verse 7, by the time we get here, James is, he's already said to them, he said, you're, you're an adulterous people. You can't be friends with the world and be friends with God. That makes you an enemy of God. Remember from last week that you can't have Christ, you can't be the bride of Christ and be the bride of someone else. It's an idolatrous desire for an adulterous affair with the world. And James gives us the answer to that problem in verse 7, beginning in verse 7. Just look at the commands that are all bunched together here. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be wretched. Mourn. Weep. Turn laughter into mourning and joy into gloom. That's actually a double command. There's turn laughter into joy or mourning and turn joy into gloom. There's, there's two imperatives there. I combined them. Humble yourself before the Lord and finally do not speak evil against one another. That's a long list. And they're all right there together. If you read carefully through this list that, that James gives us and consider what it is that he's saying you're going to see some connections and parallels here. And I've told you a hundred times, we, we need to read the Word carefully. This is life. It is instruction for life and godliness. We don't just, we don't just glance over it or have a, a laissez-faire attitude towards it. This is instruction. So we, we want to know what it says. Read it carefully. Amen. If you read it carefully, you'll see that there are connections and parallels, and the reason to do this is so that it can inform our approach to the rest of the Scripture, to what comes after it. The list starts with submit yourselves to God. And it's kind of bookended with humble yourself before the Lord. Verse one, submit, verse 7, submit yourself. Verse 10, humble yourself. These are like two different parentheses that set apart what's between them. And in there we have some parallels. Resist the devil and draw near to the Lord. Those are parallel. You can't have one without the other. Since what James says, you can't be friends with the world and friends with God, then to draw near to God necessarily involves resisting the devil, resisting the world. Drawing near to the devil or trying to go after the forbidden things of the world necessarily involves pulling away from God. There's, there's a parallel. He says, uh, cleanse your hands and purify your heart. Again, you, you can't have one without the other. This echoes what Jesus said when he is pronouncing woes against the scribes and Pharisees back in Matthew 23. In verse 25, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first Clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. So James parallels this with, with clean your hands, the outside of the cup. Check your actions, check your behavior. Do good, humble things, not selfish, prideful things. The things that are external to you, make those clean. Remember, faith without works is dead. We want good works. But then he says, purify your hearts with the inside of the cup. Don't just do humble deeds. Don't just do good deeds. You, know, you, you can do good things for the wrong reasons. You can do good things for selfish reasons, for prideful reasons. So James says it's not good enough to just clean your hands, that your hands are clean. Your heart has to be pure. So there's a parallel there. Clean your hands and purify your hearts. Be wretched. Weep. 
Mourn over your sin. Turn laughter into mourning and joy into gloom. In other words, grieve and, and lament your sinful nature. And all of that is pushed into the bookend statement of humble yourself before the Lord. This is part of humility before God, sorrow over sin. That's part of cleansing the hands and purifying the heart. We don't, we don't rejoice over sin, we mourn it. We cry out to God to cleanse us of it. We don't follow after sin, we turn away from it and we run toward Christ. And He will make us exalted. James says, humble yourselves. That means bring yourself low. Way back at the beginning, I said that, that pride rejects grace. Pride cannot long for a Savior. Humility does that. I know I've taken a while to walk through that, and I, I haven't even really touched our anchor text this morning. It's for a reason, though. Like I said, it informs how we approach the following verses. Because the following verses have been, well, I mean, I will say they've been confusingly applied. All of these commands are bunched together. There are parallels and there are connections between them. The book ends, submit yourself to God, humble yourself before God. They are paralleled with the immediately following command, do not speak evil against one another. It's easy to see that James is targeting sinful pride. Submit, humble, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, clean your hands, purify your hearts, be wretched, mourn, weep, humble yourself before the Lord. Oh, and by the way, while I'm on the subject of pride and humility, don't speak evil against one another. Because being humble before God involves gracious speech about one another. James says, verse 11, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. Uh, it's, it's worth taking a moment to try to clarify in our minds what it is that James is talking about with this evil speech. And I think the ESV does a good job here. Um, and the King James, the King James also translated it as, you know, don't speak evil or keep evil speech away. Other translations use the word slander. Um, don't slander one another. Now, I think slander is a bit too specific as a, as a, as a command. Don't use evil speech is a bit more broad. James is warning us against evil, critical, malicious speech. Now, now slander is all of those things. Evil, critical, and malicious. Accusations. But the, these things, slander is born of a lie. It, maybe it's a complete fabrication, or maybe it's, it's the, the truth that's misrepresented, or mispresented, or misinterpreted, either intentionally or unintentionally. Slander involves a lie for malicious purposes. It, it's spoken with the intent to harm, Amen. right? Amen. Because of how James talks about this kind of approach, or this kind of attitude with evil speech, I'm going to add that it's spoken with an intent to judge, a judgmental attitude. Slander is not the only kind of wicked, judgmental, malicious speech, though, is it? Gossip is a very close relative 
of slander. It's just as wicked and just as judgmental and, and just as, as, uh, as selfish as slander. Where slander is a false accusation, though, the distinction is that gossip is true. Gossip is the truth. It's the truth used in a malicious way. Or another way to put it is it's the truth out of place. I mean, you know, you, you hear about old so-and-so, old sister so-and-so, I can't believe what she did. That's probably true what she did because she's just that kind of person. Whatever. But that had no business coming out of your mouth. And it certainly did not come from a pure heart that's humble before God. You, you probably know this when you see it. And I want to be careful about painting an us versus them kind of a picture because, again, James is talking to brothers. This is something that all of us will struggle with at some point. Self-righteousness and judgmentalism. We all get you know, hit with this and we all struggle with this at from time to time. Even so, there are people, and you know them, for whom this has become more of a defining character trait than others. They're just always critical about people, and they're pretty vocal about it. They're just always negative about people, and they're pretty vocal about it. And oddly enough, they themselves are rarely ever the subject of their critical nature <laughs> or their negativity. They're rarely ever at fault. You know the guy, you know, he gets fired from every job he's had, but he's, it's always the boss's fault. You know that guy? They had it out for me. They, they didn't like me. He was a, a jerk, whatever. Or the, the woman who's on her fifth husband because all the other ones were jerks. The problem's not, I mean, you never look at here. Let's bring it in a bit from those extreme examples. Let's bring it in. Well, they're not that extreme. Let's bring it in a bit. The guy who's a, a perfect driver and everybody else is an idiot. <laughs> Confession time when the girls were little and we had to take them to school and we would drop them off in the parent drop-off line. It's one lane, and, and we have to get to work. We're dropping our kids off, and, and there would be parents that would pull up because it's elementary school, and they got to take the little, I got, I, he's never been without me. We gotta, it's, like, it's like, what is it, October. We've been doing this for three months now. And so they got, they'd stop in this one lane and take their kid into the, and everybody's waiting because we can't move because it's one lane. And, and the, the, the girls learned a new word from their dad, a stupidiot. A stupid idiot. It was, I don't know. That's a stupid idiot. I had a very judgmental, critical attitude uh, towards those other drivers. And they just, you know, I mean, we felt it too. We wanted to be close to our kids. And there was a, I mean, there was a certain amount of, you know, depression when you send them away, even though it's good for them. There was a, oh, it was tough. So I, I was not very, um, what's the word, compassionate. To where I was very critical. So I was not very patient with them. Yes, mother. Thank you, mother. Appreciate that. (laughs) 
James is talking about a self-exalting, critical attitude that's rooted in pride and idolatry. And then it comes out in the things that we say. Let me show you where I get that description, the self-exalting, critical, prideful, idolatrous description. The, the next sentence in verse 11, James says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. So, so he's including judgmental attitudes in the, the category of evil speech. And he condemns that in the previous sentence. So not all critical speech is evil speech. Can we agree on that? All right. There are times when the truth is critical. For example, there are only two genders. That is truth that is critical to a large swath of people these days. And it must be spoken, and it must be spoken in love. The sinful way of doing this, the way that James is speaking against, would be like saying, I have evaluated you, and I have judged you guilty. There's a certain kind of exalted, self-righteous pride there that says, the law of God isn't good enough, I must be the judge. And that's what James says. The one that speaks against a brother or judges his brother, he speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Now, that's a terrible pride to have. Remember, way back in chapter 1, verse 22, James tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. But be doers of the word, not hearers only. For if anyone is a hearer of the word... And not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. There's a lot of similar language there between that, that passage in chapter 1 and what James tells us here in chapter 4. He says, if, if you speak evil against one another, you're not a doer of the law. You're, you're, you've become a judge of the law. Well, which law? What's that one right there in, verse, in, chapter, in chapter 1, verse 22? That's the law James is talking about, the perfect law of liberty. You're not a doer, James says, which means you, you have pridefully examined your own face in the mirror and you walked away thinking, this is the standard. Right here. That's what all y'all got to be judged by. Woe be unto you. This kind of pride is based in idolatry. This uh, judgmental and critical attitude manifested in our speech. Back in chapter 4, in the, the next sentence in verse 11, he says, If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So you have set yourself in the judge's seat and declared righteousness above the law. You've spoken evil against the law. By casting judgment, you're breaking the law that you claim to know so well, well enough to be able to be its judge. What James calls the perfect law of liberty is what Jesus gave us when they asked him about the greatest commandment. He said, Jesus said, love God with everything you've got, 
and love your neighbor as yourself. You remember that? Okay. This idolatrous judgment breaks both of those. It's not loving to God with your whole heart because it's not humble before God. It's not loving to your neighbor as yourself because it exacts a standard on your neighbor that you wouldn't want yourself. Now, you know the most judgmental people, they cannot stand it when they become in the spotlight. They just come unraveled when you point out the log in their eye, even though they are very quick to point out the twig in someone else's eye. Verse 12, James reminds us that uh, we are not the judge, <laughs> that there is a judge, and who really is the judge? And that we must humble ourselves and submit to this judge. The only one who is able to utterly save and utterly destroy, that's who the judge is, Amen. and that is God. Jesus is the one to whom all authority has been given, not us. Remember in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or end of Matthew, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. He is the one who will separate the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares and the righteous from the wicked because he's the one who sits on the throne on judgment day. He's the one who's going to say either, well done, my good and faithful servant, or depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Jesus is the one that gets to say that. Amen. Amen. So James says, you are brothers. You know who the lawgiver and the judge is. You know that he is the only one who can save or destroy, not you. So faced with that knowledge and living under that confession, who are you to judge your neighbor? Amen. Amen. Again, context matters, okay? Because James is not talking about, you know, he is talking about a, a wicked attitude of prideful judgmentalism that spills over into evil judgmental speech. There are, are many places in Scripture where we are told to be righteous judges. We are told to make distinctions between right and wrong, to call out false teachers and to mark them and name them because of their destructive and damnable heresies. There's a, there's a call in Scripture for us to be righteous judges. But even in that, even in that call for Scripture, there is a posture of humility that the Christian believer must assume. And there's a love for our neighbor that must be evident in our hearts. Amen. Amen. And it will be evident in how we say what we must say in truth and in love. At times when we must be critical. That's not what James is talking about. I'm talking about a judgmental, prideful attitude that we have where we just nitpick everybody and nitpick one another. We are not the judge. I mentioned it a bit earlier, but... Um, Jesus talked about this very thing, and I, I think it, that's what James is drawing from here. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. You ever heard that before? I guarantee you most unsaved people who've never heard, the, who don't believe that Jesus is Lord, who don't believe the Bible is authoritative, who don't believe the Bible is even true, can quote you that. Amen. And they'll hold you to that. Doesn't your Bible say don't judge? Look, look at what Jesus says, verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now we, we spent probably two weeks on that passage a year ago or so. Neither Jesus nor James is saying, don't make judgments. What they are saying is, be very careful how you make them. Be very humble how you make them and why you make them and what you do with them. Drawing on this, I think that James seems to be saying, hey, brothers and sisters, you you don't need to be nitpicking each other. You don't need to be finding fault with each other in order to feed your own selfish pride and make yourself feel better about being so wicked. You need to focus on the log in your own eye. Weep, mourn, be wretched, humble yourself. Because there's enough of you that hasn't surrendered to the Lord quite yet, everything quite, that you don't need to go picking at your fellow Christians. Isn't that what they do? Isn't that what judgmentalism does? It nitpicks to anesthetize ourselves to the stench of our own failures. And don't, don't sit there pridefully and look at me and say, well, I'm glad I don't have that problem. Because I know you do. I've talked to some of you. I'm messing with you. I'm really not. It's serious business. It's serious business. I think that James points us here again in these two verses uh, to two different pictures. One, one that is wicked and one that is righteous. Remember, he gave us two different pictures of wisdom, one that is of the world and one that is not, or one that is of God. Two different uh, pictures of faith, one that's alive and one that's dead. That's pointing us here to two different pictures. The prideful, idolatrous attitude that says, I have judged you. And the humble one that says, I'm, I'm not your judge, but I know the one who is. And I know he won't like this, so let me show you a better way. There's a, we have to speak truth in love. (laughs) We cannot uh, attach ourselves to a lie. That's why, for example, just taking things out of the headlines, I am not at all for pronoun hospitality at all. It's a lie. It's a flat-out lie. But there's a hateful way to do it, and there's a loving way to do it. I'm not saying being hospitable. There's a hateful way to reject that and a loving way to reject that. A way that says, I am humble before a Lord who is the law. I'm not the law. He is the law. And he is not happy with this. The other day, my wife shared a quote with me. I don't remember who said it, but it was profound. It went like this. Every martyr that has been or that was murdered by Paul rejoiced when they met him in heaven. Now think about that. Before Paul knew Christ, he set himself up as judge. And he, to the point, he let his prideful self become the judge to the point that he went around, he chased down, he he hunted down and murdered innocent Christians. And every one of those who he hunted down cheered and praised 
and gave thanks to Jesus when they saw him in heaven. Man, there is a humility there. If anyone had the right to judge, it was the guys that got killed. You did this. You don't deserve to be here. You don't belong here. And yet, I guarantee you, when they saw him, they said, thank you, Jesus. So glad to see you. It's a humility that bows to the sovereign authority of Jesus. The one who is the judge is the one who can absolutely save or absolutely destroy. Who are you? It says, I'm not the judge, Lord, because that's bound up in your title. You are Lord, your judge. No one will get to escape judgment. You know that? At some point, every last one of us will stand before Christ to give an account. And I pray, I pray that we are counted among the humble who saw our own need for a Savior and had grace toward our brothers and threw ourselves upon the altar of His great mercy. Let us put away all pride and selfish ambition. Let us put away all judgmentalism and evil speech. Humble ourselves before the Lord. Love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you once again in in the holy name of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word. It is precious and right and good and sufficient. Lord, I pray that we see the sufficiency of it and the wisdom in it. Sometimes our eyes eyes have to be opened to to see wisdom. And Father, I'm, I'm asking you, you said in this very book that we're studying that anyone who lacks wisdom should ask you and it will be given because you give it generously. So Father, I'm asking you on behalf of all of us, give us wisdom to see the, the truth and the rightness of your word, Lord, and to apply it to our own lives. Help us with this selfish judgmentalism that can so often and so subtly creep up within us, uh, Lord, that that it would lead us away from you, um, lead us to not be humble before you, lead us out of loving our neighbor. Father, help us to serve you rightly and to love one another well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.